going live. Good morning, listeners. This is Michael Martins, your host at the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting today from cloudy and cool West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's episode, we continue our investigation into the mismanagement of BC's Salmonid populations, today shifting our focus towards the southern half of the province. Joining us for this episode is Jesse Zeman, Director of Fish and Wildlife Restoration at the BC Wildlife Federation. Mr. Zeman recently completed his Master's of Arts degree at the University of British Columbia with his thesis focused on local government sustainability planning in BC. Jesse is also a pilot with Air Canada and has flown commercially for over 14 years. As a lifelong hunter and angler, Mr. Zeman is a passionate outdoorsman and a vocal advocate for sustainable management of our fish and wildlife resources. Jesse, welcome to the show. Morning. Thanks, Michael. So uh, to begin with, uh, Jesse, how about you give us a bit of background on your, yourself and your, and your passion for the outdoors? How did that come, how did that come to be? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I think pretty uh, typical story, uh, you know, raised in the outdoors as a young kid started hunting and fishing, you know, basically when I learned how to walk or probably before then and uh, had uh, the social network. So lots of uh, friends, my dad hunted, my grandpa's both hunted uncles and, you know, so a typical upbringing, I guess, in BC, lived in Kelowna. So we had lots of access to fish and wildlife and, you know, that kind of got me to today. A, a real BC boy, died in the wool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, when you look at the research, those are the people that kind of tend to stay in as if your dad is a hunter, uh, chances are you're going to be a hunter and you'll stick with it. So yeah, pretty, pretty average story for hunting and fishing, I would say. Yeah, uh, it's become a lifestyle and a way of life. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So let's, let's dig into some of the details here. Um, start with the uh, Fraser River chum fishery. Um, any, any comments just offhand uh, about that fishery? Yeah. Do you want to, should we tackle the steelhead issue right away or just uh, kind of go talk about chum broadly or? Yeah. I mean, let's, let's, let's begin with the chum broadly and then we'll get into what that fishery's effect has been on our interior steelhead. Yeah, sure. The, so the chum fishery now it's and um, we're talking about it in the Fraser and it's a bit of a, it's a lot of it is a put and take fishery there. Uh, you know, there's hatcheries that support this. And essentially now um, there's two kind of commercial elements. One is the sale of chum, which, you know, you'll find in places like Save on Foods, which is um, usually in the form of smoked salmon. And then there's the roe fishery. And the roe fishery is uh, probably the bigger driver. Um, and essentially that's, you know, the fish come into the river, you take the, take the fish, you take the females, you take the row out of them and you sell the row and it goes overseas. So that's the quote unquote value in the fishery uh, compared to all the other species that come up the Fraser. There's really not a lot there, um, but there's a commercial opportunity, um, which is called um, now a lot of them are uh, economic opportunity fisheries, which are essentially commercial fisheries for First Nations on the lower Fraser. And, and those are primarily uh, gillnet fisheries? Yep. Yeah, for the most part, those are net fisheries. Those run kind of concurrently, or there's overlap between the chum fishery and the pink fishery. And um, the pink fishery has moved to somewhat more selective, which are called beach chain, where essentially they put the net out into the river, catch the fish, and then bring them towards shore. And then the fish that are bycatch are put back in the river. 
the difference between a gill net and uh, and uh, uh, the beach sanding is, you know, if you're a fish and you get caught in a net, even if you get put back in the river, there's a really, really, really good chance you're going to end up dying. Um, whereas with a beach sand, you know, the likelihood is less if a bunch of requirements are met, if the fish are handled properly. If they're not handled properly, uh, beach sanding isn't super selective either, but um, but it's 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 better than gill nets for sure. And that would be with, with the, I guess the difference is the openings, or the primary difference would be the opening size of those nets. Um, the purse seine will have a much smaller opening size, which wouldn't allow the fish's head and gills to get stuck into the, the mesh. Yeah, yeah, with the, with the beach seine, I mean, a lot of the fish get caught and they have much smaller nets and you kind of pull them into shore and then pick them out and put them back over. The purse seine, which is off of a boat, is another fishery. Um, but yeah, the gillnet fishery, there's a whole bunch of things that happen, unintended consequences. So one is it's not selective on fish. It's only selective on size. So if you're the right size of fish and you end up in a net, chances are you're going to end up dead. And so that's applicable not only to chum, it's applicable to sturgeon, it's applicable to endangered steelhead, it's applicable to chinook, it's applicable to sockeye that are big enough. But the other thing that they find is that fish that even can swim through or that make through, they get tangled up in the net and go through. There's a really good chance that they're going to die anyways. And then they have a thing called dropouts, which are fish that get tangled up in it. And as you pull the net in, the fish fall out and they end up dead as well. So um, gill nets, I mean, they kill a lot of fish and a lot of fish that aren't being targeted. And so we call them non-selective fisheries, whereas beach sanding is slightly more selective. The mortality rate around release fish isn't as high. Um, and you know it gets better than that. There's other kinds of fisheries that we don't use in BC that are far more selective than those two. But definitely gill nets are, uh, you know, they're non-selective in the sense that they, be, if you're a fish and you're the right size, you're going to end up dead. They're very efficient from a fishing standpoint, then. Mm-hmm. And and so why the why the difference between uh, the beach seine for the pinks and uh, gill netting for the for the chum salmon? Well. <laughs> It gets it gets complicated. The lower Fraser is moving more to beach shaning because of bycatch of other species. Um, I think farther up the Fraser, they have tried beach shaning, but the river just has too much debris in it, and it's just not a successful way to fish. Um, so again, gill nets have been the preferred method or drift nets, and um, that's the big motivation. And then there's other more selective things like pound traps or pound nets that they're they've got on the Columbia now, and really the reason why we haven't moved to those is because the government just hasn't bucked up and stepped in and said, here, we want you to transition to this kind of fishery. So let's touch on the, the pound net in just a second. Um, I just wanted to, to loop back to what you'd mentioned in terms of, you said that a lot of these uh, chum salmon are, are enhanced, they're from a hatchery. Um, if that's the case, shouldn't we be targeting those uh, closer to their terminus as opposed to during their transit through the Fraser? Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, with the state of salmon, you're going to see more and more of a move towards terminal fisheries. So, um, you know, the closer that fish get to their natal stream, the, ch the chances of us catching the fish that we want to catch that we think are sustainable goes up. And so for chum uh, and pinks, it does make a lot of sense to catch them in the river of their origin. The problem with these fish is that the closer they get to the river of origin, the lower the quality of meat. And so if you're selling a salmon for its meat, you know, the further it gets upstream, the lower the quality, which means the lower price you get. And you also run into another issue related to First Nations is everyone has, 
a territory. And so, you know, we can take the extreme example and say, um, with pinks that go all the way up to the Thompson or wherever, uh, the, the First Nations on the lower Fraser want access to those fish, but if the fishery isn't open till it ends up in the Thompson, then the lower Fraser isn't gonna get access to the fish, so now it becomes an allocation battle. So it gets complicated. Mm. Right, right, okay, okay. Um, and then, so if, if we look at the pound trap, then uh, how does that uh, how does that work? How is that um, more selective than the, their other two methods that we discussed? Yeah, it's essentially it's essentially a trap that the fish swim into, and you can figure out which ones you want to go in and pull out and let the rest go. And I mean, fish wheels are another semi-selective approach, which there are a few on the Fraser, um, where the fish gets basically caught in a wheel and it comes up. And so really, you know, the objective around these fisheries is if you're going to have endangered fish going through the system, while you have other species that you can harvest, you need to have the most uh, minimal impact on the endangered fish as possible. And pound traps get you as close as we can probably get right now to that. Right. Okay. And, and you mentioned they're being used on the Columbia successfully? Yeah, they've got one. Uh, they're really efficient. They were originally banned, I think, you know, over, well over 100 years ago because they catch so many salmon. So back in the day, you know, the, the government decided they didn't want these because they caught too many salmon. And now, you know, our mindset is shifting back and saying, well, we might be catching too many salmon, but at least we can be selective and pick out the ones that are sustainable and let the ones that are not sustainable go. So we're, we're going back a long ways in our thinking. Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, I think we always need to refine what our decision-making processes are and the criteria that we're using uh, to make those decisions. Sure. I, yeah, the reality of the situation is we have a whole bunch of fish that we can't afford to kill, and we have to figure out a way to not kill them. And one of those ways is to not fish at all, period, full stop. And, you know, I don't think society is quite at that place yet where they want to completely stop fishing. And so you have to figure out a way to minimize the impact on those uh, endangered stocks. Yeah, I mean, and, and uh, Bob Hooten and I had a similar discussion where, you know, I, th- I think we're getting very close to those population numbers where perhaps all the stakeholders need to take a break for a, a you know, a cycle, which is whether that's four or five years, and really let the abundance of, this fi- of these fish come back. And, and as you suggest, I mean, we're, we're at the stage now where every single one of those individuals is becomes highly valuable in terms of their uh, egg or sperm that they're carting up to the spawning grounds to, to replenish the stocks. Yep. Yep, Uh, And so obviously uh, we we began talking about uh, the the Thompson River and Chilco River steelhead, which are um, uh, casualties uh, in the bycatch of this chum fishery. Um, What, uh, what sort of abundance decline have we seen with those two runs? It depends on how far you want to go back. I think some of the historical records talk about 30,000 fish. Um, but more recently in the eighties, you're going to see, so, yeah, I mean, maybe we should back up with the, so that in the eighties, you're going to see up to, you know, 5,000 fish returning. Um, but in the literature going all the way back to, I think it was, uh, Narver, who was the director of fisheries at one point, his master's thesis, I believe, um, he talks about nets and this goes back to the seventies, I think. So the, the big thing with these steelhead, these endangered steelhead, the Thompson Chill Colton is that they come back at the same time as chum and as pinks. And the scientists, the government biologists, estimate that up to half of these steelhead are caught in nets. 
and up to half of those die. So every time they come back, you know, 25% of them are going to end up dead because of nets. It can change from year to year and it depends on which fisheries are open, but that's the big constraint is that these fish go out for five years, come back and end up dead in a net. And then the other big thing that really isn't talked about um, is that steelhead's life cycle, they can spawn twice, right? So they can go back to the ocean or whatever they do and then come up again. Well, if your chance of hitting a net your first time through the Fraser when you're 10 pounds or 12 pounds or whatever is 50% and you know your, your probability of survival, your chances are half of them are gonna die so your survival is down to 75%. The second time when you come back and you're that much bigger, your chances of making it through a gauntlet of nets are slim to none. And we know that these bigger fish have more eggs, they have higher fecundity, so you're, you know, you're really doubling down on the population at that time. Well, that also has the long-term effect of reducing the genetic potential of, of the, that population. Obviously, those return spawners probably have the best of the genetics in terms of genetic fitness. And if they're unable to come back for that second spawning uh, round, you're removing all of those premium uh, genetics out of the gene pool. Yep. Yeah, they could be. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely... Um, there's definitely issues around selection and we're certainly seeing another salmon where they're coming back smaller and smaller and smaller. And, you know, the ocean is a big scary place for fish right now and survival is low, but definitely if, if our net size is selecting out the biggest, fastest growing fish, then there could definitely be an effect for sure. Yeah. And, and so what uh, you, you mentioned, we we're sort of in the 5,000 uh, fish uh, range individuals in the 80s. What are we at today? Uh, I think the estimate this year for Chilcolton came in at 38 individual fish. <laughs> and so that could be a little bit higher due to sightability or whatever. It's definitely going to be under 60. And then um, I want to say the Thompson for this year. So for the 2020 spawning came in around 216 or 230. So, you know, you're, you're, you're getting down. I mean, one of the uh, MLAs made, made the, made the point you're getting down to so few fish that you could give them all names. Yeah, pretty much. And, and at that point they're, they're just as important as uh, a child that you would put a name on. I mean, that's uh, uh, and I, and you know, I guess philosophical question. I mean, why should we care about those steelhead? Yeah, that's really good. That is a really good question. I mean, there's the obvious, you know, the interesting thing with Thompson from an angler's perspective, just from the, you know, the selfish side is those, those are kind of like the, uh, the Michael Phelps of the fish world. Like those are the strongest, most fit fish. People used to come from all over the world to go fish the Thompson. And it, it was like, it, it's almost like a religion. There are, there are guys that still to this day, it's been closed for years. There's still guys that go to Spence's bridge and go camping for a week and don't fish because they're so passionate about the, the the Thompson river steelhead. So these guys yeah. just cannot help themselves. They go sit around and lament about how great it was at one point And that's where they still spend their time. And, but I mean, they're an indicator species, really. Um, they're an indicator of what's going to happen to when, what is happening to sockeye in the Fraser, what's happening to a bunch of the Chinook runs in the Fraser. And so when you think about, our food web and what it means to us as British Columbians is, you know, we live on fish uh, for first nations. They have fish on their drums. It's part of their culture for us who like to angle. It's part of our culture as well. I mean, I have pictures of steelhead in my house and uh, of salmon in my house. 
Um, and then when people talk about things like killer whales, uh, you know, killer whales live on salmon. So even if you don't care about fish so much and you like killer whales, I mean, it's all these things that we think about as British Columbians about what, why we like to live here. Um, they're all, they're all in peril and, and at, at, you know, in danger of going extinct basically. Yeah, and I, and I guess that's uh, uh, really where we're at at this point. I mean, we have a series of these uh, iconic species, which uh, are, are not only uh, you know visually stimulating and, and have a history in terms of the the importance uh, of, of the first peoples and, and the early settlers, um, but as you suggest, I mean these are um, real canaries in the coal mine in terms of what's happening with our ecosystems. Now, is is the um, from a spawning and rearing standpoint, uh, how is the Thompson doing? Is that ecosystem uh, still functioning well, or or have we seen some declines there to contribute to this decline in population numbers? It, it's interesting when you talk to the biologists who have been around a long time and the scientists, they say that water flow is better than it ever was. Um, from their perspective, habitat in you know, freshwater habitat is not a limiting factor. And, you know, in places like there is definitely, uh, the Nicola system definitely has low flow issues in the summer, for sure. There's been an over allocation of water. On um, the Bonaparte system, which is another tributary of the Thompson, they've spent a lot of money, um, you know, basically figuring out how to manage water and allocating water licenses. So that what the scientists tell us is that freshwater habitat is not a limiting issue. They're saying pinniped predation, ocean survival and nets are the big three. Right, right. And do, do we have a, a, an idea of what the um, interception rate of that chum fishery is in terms of a percentage of those fish migrating upstream? Yeah, like I said, in, in really bad years, they figure half of the steelhead are caught in a net somewhere and half of those die. That's in the really bad years. The, the trouble is <clears throat> what we know around reporting and monitoring on a number of these fisheries is that there's fish that simply don't get reported. And, you know, so for example, last year, DFO with their test fishery caught two steelhead at the beginning of September. And I think for the entire rest of the, the following two months where net fisheries were all over the river, I think there were two other steelhead reported. So, you know, how is it that a boat that goes out for two hours every other day on a test fishery catches two fish and then the hundreds of nets that are sitting in that river for hours at a time are have only caught two other fish it's, yeah, I mean, so it's statistically impossible so there's some huge holes in monitoring cl clearly a reporting issue then yep yeah um and now has the chum salmon still maintained its uh, marine stewardship council certification as being sustainable that's that's is that that's gone now or is that still in place yes yeah, so so that is basically similar you talked about you're in the timber industry the msc is basically a stamp that goes on these fish that says these fish are su sustainably caught and over the last five years, we've put a ton of pressure on the province of British Columbia through the Ministry of Agriculture, whose job it is to sell fish, and through forest lands, natural resource operations, whose job is to manage fish. This certification involves a process where DFO is involved, commercial fishing is involved, eggs involved, flinros involved, and then stakeholders are involved. And we've been basically telling them that the fishery is not sustainable because they're destroying the steelhead population at the same time. And it got so bad that last year, 
the industry actually, the commercial fishing industry withdrew from the MSC certification because the writing was on the wall. So they were, you know, the writing was on the wall that MSC was going to pull out uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, lack of monitoring just by DFO uh, was one of them, but the industry basically said, we're gonna pull out of this certification because we know we're gonna lose it. Mm, interesting. Um, and, and so with that, uh, I, I recall originally, you mentioned that a lot of this chum is being sold now as uh, uh, smoked salmon and usually, usually it appears on the, the shelves as Keta. They're sort of doing a little bit of a branding exercise there. Uh, traditionally, wasn't a lot of this used uh, for pet food? I mean, it, it was the roe was stripped to be sent to Japan and the, the flesh went as uh, pet food? Yeah, yeah. It's a low value fish. And I think in a lot of cases, just the roe is stripped and uh, the rest of the fish is left there, right? Um, so... So it's not even, you know, I think it depends on the quality of the fish and on the market, but basically if the meat isn't worth anything, it just gets left on the side of the river. Uh, so, you know, re really a, a very exploitive fishery with uh, some, some other deleterious consequences to the other stocks that are co-migrating. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, with these kind of numbers, you know, we've got sort of, you know, a few dozen really left of the, Chil of, of the Chilco system and, you know, a couple hundred in the Thompson. Um, aren't we getting into the species at risk uh, legislation here to, to begin enacting some of that legislation? Yeah, so <clears throat> now the dates, I would say it was in 2018. So the Species at Risk Act process goes like this. First of all, the species has to be basically in decline. It goes to Kasiwik, which is the uh, Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada, which is an independent body of scientists, they review the population trajectory, and then they basically assess whether these fish are threatened or endangered. And then it goes to Species at Risk Act process. Now, Species at Risk Act is federal government. Kasiwik is kind of arm's length from government. Then it goes into Species at Risk Act process, and they review, um, they do a recovery potential assessment which is a scientific document. Then they do a scientific advisory release, which is like a lay person's document. That goes to the minister, who's the minister of environment for the, you know, the country of Canada. And then they make a decision on to whether these fish should be listed or not. So, and I think it was 2018, we got the process rolling. We went to Kasiwek and said, there are no fish left. We need to do an emergency assessment, which is highly unusual for Kasiwek. They took it up, said, yes, we'll do an emergency assessment. The emergency assessment said that these fish are at imminent threat of extinction. Um, it got forwarded on to the federal government and that's where things really went sideways. Um, the uh, recovery potential assessment, as far as we can tell, um, was conducted by three scientists. So one from DFO, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, one from the province of British Columbia and one independent. And so they wrote their science report. It went through the CSAS, the Canadian Science Advisory Secretariat process, which is a peer review process. Our Freedom of Information also indicates that 41 managers, fisheries managers and biologists reviewed this as well. And that recovery potential assessment scientifically reviewed document has never been released to the public. And what we can tell from the Freedom of Information request is that somewhere between this RPA and the science advisory report, which is the layperson's interpretation, the wording was changed between the two documents is what we can tell. 
So essentially downplaying the, the level of urgency and need of uh, intervening in this situation. Well, yes, in part, but mostly I think the way it reads, so there's, there's, we've got two agencies, two jurisdictions. We've got the province and the federal government and our FOIs are through the province. So a lot of the stuff that the federal government has to say is redacted, but really what we can, what it looks like is that they're downplaying the effect of NATS. That's the big thing is that the wording has been changed between the RPA, between the science document and the layperson's document. And it's essentially trying to downplay the effect of NATS, which enables DFO to just continue status quo, which is, you know, probably going to end up wiping these fish out. So, I mean, we're, we're really looking at an extra extirpation event here of these two runs, which will happen in a short period of time. If, if something isn't taken, some actions aren't taken. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, when you get down to 36 fish, like we know with caribou, you know, you can get down to a couple of handfuls of caribou and then a snow slide can wipe them all out. And so when you get down to really low levels of abundance, you run into genetic bottlenecks, but you also run into stochastic events. Things like the slide at Big Bar, if that would have happened at a different time or blocked these fish's migration, then they would have just been done. And so when you get down to really, really small numbers, it's not just one thing. There's a whole bunch of additional risk that comes up that could drive you into extinction really quickly. Right. And, and so I mean, DFO essentially has bastardized the scientific evidence that was presented to it. Um, or are they using a population model, which isn't valid? Oh, so that's, yeah. So that's another piece. So, so they, so they have, Still to this day, we're I think two years later, they have not released this scientific reviewed, peer reviewed document to the public. Like the Canadians paid for this. No one is able to see it still two years later. Um, in terms of DFO, yeah, they have their own model um, on, on uh, migration. And we have a number of freedom of information requests that basically show DFO trying to push the province to open up chum fisheries and pink fisheries because the DFO model shows that there's hardly any steelhead in the river and we're hardly going to catch any. That model has been summarily dis- dismissed for being faulty. It's, it, wasn't, it didn't go through the peer review process. The people who are steelhead experts have said that it's not scientifically defensible and DFO continues to use it to justify opening fisheries. Yeah, which is a real shame. I mean, if we were dealing with uh, a high value fishery, you may be able to make the argument that economically one supersedes the other. But in in this case, I'm not sure that argument can be made. I mean, certainly, if we've got, uh, you know, five, 6,000 steelhead returning to the Thompson, and you have anglers from all over the world flying in to, uh, to spend a week here and you know, fishing and maybe they spend a few extra days tootling around. I mean, the, that's bringing millions of dollars into British Columbia's economy. Yeah. And, and so now you're bringing up another thing that when we went through the species at risk act process, so as part of it, the, the government does a cost benefit analysis and um, my training through school, I've done a bunch on cost benefit. And so the government basically looks at this and goes, okay, what would it cost if we had to protect these fish? And, you know, and what, what are the benefits? And so when they did that cost benefit analysis or when they set up the framework, they basically said, you know, steelhead aren't worth anything because we can't sell them in a grocery store. And so this fish is all cost, no benefit. And we raised the flag and said, wait a second, 
just because you can't sell a fish in the supermarket doesn't mean there's no value. People who catch and release fish value that fish and they spend money on it. First Nations who historically would have eaten these fish value those fish. There's a whole bunch of values that the public has. You know, the, the public, even if they don't catch fish, they think that fish are important and they want to see them on the landscape. And we did have work that uh, had been done in the United States that basically asked the public what their willingness to pay was for steelhead. And so the federal government was forced to include these um, what we would call non-market benefits or non-market values. And essentially the cost benefit said, if people value fish similarly to the way they do in the United States, then it's worth saving these fish. But, you know, we're not sure if the public values these fish to the same extent. And it gets into weasel words, but the long story short was the cost benefit analysis, once we included non-market values said, yes, it's worth saving these fish. Um, but DFO did not have it set up that way at all. And do you have, do you recall what those uh, figures are? Uh, I can get them. I can get them to you. I'm going off of memory on all this stuff. So sure. Um, <laughs> no, that's, that's great. I mean, that, it'd be interesting to see what that value of that chum fishery is versus what the actual value of, uh, you know, the, and it's certainly I think if you were to ask anyone in Spences Bridges or Lytton, uh, you know, if they'd like to see the, the anglers return and that uh, economic uh, generation in their, in their communities, I think they'd all say they would. Oh, for sure. And they, yeah, and they didn't even, yeah. So I'll get you the document for sure. I've got it in my files, um, but it, it talks about most of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Uh, and then what about the, the 2019 BC recovery plan? Doesn't that uh, kind of uh, encompass some of these issues? Yeah. So, so I mean, essentially we had DFO getting beat up monthly in the, in the newspaper, in the province, in the Vancouver sun over, all of the things they've done and all of the things they're hiding and the science they're hiding. And so last year, the minister said, Oh, well, we're going to have this team and the DFO is going to work with the province and we're going to get this thing straightened out. And we've got all these action items. And so the province came in and the province said, uh, I think at the time, if you want to protect, I think it's 90% of the run, you're going to have to lay off on the nets for 77 days. So that's what you're going to have to do to protect these fish. And DFO said, okay, thanks. Um, we're going to lay off on the nets for 27 days. And, you know, within a matter of days after the ink was dry on this agreement, uh, DFO opened uh, a pink fishery on the lower Fraser and the nets were out in full force. And even more interesting is at the time, DFO pred predicted for Chum that there was a 1% chance that they would meet their minimum escapement objective of 800,000 fish. So DFO rarely has objectives, but for Chum, they say they want 800,000 fish to hit the spawning beds. At that time in September, there was a 1% chance that they would meet that and they still allowed the retention of Chum. Unbelievable. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's, is it time for perhaps BC to take our management of our fisheries into our own hands and, and stand up to Ottawa and, and uh, try to rework this situation, which clearly isn't benefiting anyone. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. It's definitely been proposed. Uh, but if you look at the province's track record on other species like mountain caribou or Vancouver Island marmot or moose or basically anything else they manage, they've done a horrendous job as well. Um, so I think, you know, really you're looking at two big incompetent machines 
that care about a lot of values outside of fish and wildlife. And so I think there's adjustments that can be made. Um, but for the people who care about fish and wildlife, I think the big message in all this is, you know, we're going to have to find people who get elected who care about fish and wildlife because it's very clear to me anyways, being inside of this machine that the people who we're electing simply don't care. Like they really don't. Uh, or, they'll say the words like sustainability. Every single minister that I've met on the steelhead file has said, not on my watch. That's a direct quote. And none of them have done anything that we can show measurable results from. Well, I guess when Jimmy Patterson picks up the phone and tells them that their campaign funding is going to be pulled if they uh, continue not allowing the chump fishery to occur, the, they change their tune. Yeah. And I don't, I, yeah, like, and I don't even know what it is. I don't know. I think, that they just legitimately don't care. I think that they're more concerned about, you know, job, you know, jobs in the economy. That's what they always say. And I think there's two other things below that is politically, you know, politicians need two things. They need money and votes, right? So party need money to get out in front and talk to people and, you know, get advertising out and they need votes to get elected. And I think that from their perspective, people who care about fish and wildlife aren't going to vote on fish and wildlife. I think that's that's what they have in their mind is, you know, this person came in and, you know, they were a bit upset that there's no steelhead left, but they'll still vote for me. And that's the difference between what happens here in places like the United States. People in the United States go absolutely wild over things of sustainability, over fish and wildlife issues, salmon issues on the Columbia. People show up at their elected officials work and protest. And I think, you know, that's that's what we're missing here is uh, basically finding people who will support fish and wildlife in our, in our elected officials. Well, I mean, I think that's a, maybe a, a general co a comment on Canadians in, in general. I mean, we're, we're a little too apathetic and sit around and uh, don't have our voices heard or we, we try to be politically correct and, and all these sort of very uh, soft means of, of addressing issues and, and concerns. Uh, you know, I guess on, on the number of, of votes a politician could garner, I mean, what do you estimate the number of uh, passionate anglers in BC? What, what do you tag that number at? I mean, there's got to be hundreds of thousands. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. So on the hunting, just on the hunting side, there's over 100,000 licenses sold annually. On the fishing side, it's over 300,000. You have people who buy saltwater licenses and freshwater licenses. You have their families as well. And you have people who don't fish and hunt who care about wildlife, right? So when you look at what goes on in British Columbia around elections, hunters and anglers easily have the ability to control the outcome of the provincial election. Most of the provincial elections are won by, I think, between 40 to 60,000 votes, something extremely small. Um, there's always a few ridings that are very close. And hunters and anglers could 100% dictate the outcome of the provincial election in BC. So that's um, really requires some organization of those people uh, into a, towards a collective uh, body that's going to voice their concerns. Right, right. And uh, you know, if you go one step further, um, the you know the BCWF can't advocate for any one person or any one thing in terms of pol partisan politics, but a lot of the political parties in British Columbia and in Canada, their person who represents the parties is elected by the membership riding and the membership riding is usually only a few hundred people. Right. Right. So right. when you look at, you know, 
500,000 people who hunt and fish or whatever it is in British Columbia and you think that you only need a couple hundred to decide who represents you at the riding level, that's pretty easy. The math is like really straightforward. Yeah, and I, and I guess on the uh, Thompson uh, equation there, I recall there was some division and divisiveness between uh, like the drift anglers and the fly anglers. And I, I think uh, DFO and, and the province use that there to, to their benefit to divide and conquer rather than having a one voice uh, and, you know, amongst the drift fishers, I mean, if you're fishing catch, a catch and release fishery, there, there is no need for bait. And, and that's something that, you know, doesn't hold, uh, doesn't hold water to me. Uh, if you want to, if you want to use a conventional gear or fly gear, as long as you're using a lure versus bait, I mean, have at it. Yeah. And that's, that's pre my time, but you know, in the conference calls, when we first started having them, that's people started talking about their fishing opportunities and uh you know the response was look we're not here to talk about your fishing opportunities there are no fish so i don't care if you're a fly fisherman or a bait fisherman or you fish with nets there are no fish so all we're here to talk about is recovering these fish not about how you can get to fish right no there's no discussion on that end i mean at a thousand fish we could talk about that at 38 and 216 it's not up for discussion, so let's get on to recovering fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's switch gears to uh, Fraser River sockeye. Uh, it looks like our, our current 2020 return estimates uh, are the lowest in history. Is that correct? Yes, <laughs> correct. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's shocking. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's it's the state. I mean, it's not just on the Fraser. Uh, fish are doing poorly and uh you know the reality again is we have scientists who are not being listened to and i think are being muzzled in certain cases and the government the provincial government the federal government just simply are not interested in recovering salmon there's just well, no political will to do it sure and i guess if we look back one uh federal administration behind this one I think there was a real war on on salmon uh, to further their Alberta-centric uh, energy policies, right? I mean, when when you start destroying baseline data from uh, Pacific, um, uh, uh, what was it the Pacific Science Center that uh, the DFO's library was held at, and most of, you know tremendous amounts of information was essentially thrown away. That's a very uh, clever way to remove the history of uh, what your prior escapement levels were. Yeah, and it's but it's still happening within DFO as well. Um, you know, their scientists are. So here's here's another really interesting tidbit. When we talk about species at risk, typically all the federal departments have a species at risk person. So whether it's inside of the wildlife side, um, or the fisheries side, or DFO, which always a species at risk person. The species at risk person always reports to someone independent from the management side. Inside of DFO, the species at risk for salmonids reports to DFO management. It's the only case that I'm aware of in the federal government where that's, that occurs. So you have major issues with DFO management controlling the science message. Um, so that hasn't changed. I mean, maybe it was more apparent and it was political before, but inside of DFO, Science is definitely being suppressed. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And when you look at the models 
and you ask questions of scientists, um, you know, let's talk about, for example, uh, fish that are killed in illegal nets on the Fraser River. Fish that are killed in illegal nets on the Fraser River, when a DFO enforcement officer shows up, they tally up the fish, the species, they have to call it in, there's a record of that data. When you look at the models for the Fraser River, you will not find dead Chinook that were caught in illegal nets in those models. Those fish don't exist, right? So there's a whole bunch of, of I don't even know what the appropriate word is for it, but there's a whole bunch of BS that happens between science and management inside of DFO. And even with the new legislation that we have passed, it talks about setting minimum objectives for um, salmon escapement to try to get push DFO in the direction of you need to make sure there's a certain number of salmon on the spawning. I saw the makeup of the committee and it's already loaded down with DFO management as opposed to DFO science. And to me, uh, setting objectives for escapement is all about DFO science, not DFO management. So you'll find this like recurring theme inside of DFO where the objective is to open fisheries, let people fish. It's not to conserve fish or to restore fish for that matter. That sounds like a very uh, 1890s management philosophy. Right. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I mean, the illegal nets on the Fraser are, it's absolutely everywhere. It's rampant. It's thousands of fish a year. And, you know, DFO is turning a blind eye to it. Well, and that's been going on as long as I've been fishing those systems. I mean, I recall in the mid 80s that, uh, you know, we would find uh, nets that were in the Fraser, obviously illegally, or or they had washed up on beaches. And, and I mean, this has been going on for for decades. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, the, the issue here is, I mean, it's against the law for starters, right? We have laws in place to conserve and protect fish. That's the objective. Um, but it gets even more troublesome when, you know, fisheries officers are charging people and then the charges never go to crown council. Right. Like, right. like there's some major problems in this system and, you know, there's a whole bunch of first nations all over the Fraser who have taken big leadership steps that are not popular where they've signed MOUs with the conservation officer service so that they can actually charge first nations for doing things that, that they're probably constitutionally protected to do, but there's other first nations who are not following that at all, taking that approach. So it's, it's highly variable, but the bottom line is if you have a law in place and it says you can't kill endangered fish, you can't That's kill endangered fish. Yeah. Yeah. And especially not at these levels. I mean, you've got 5,000 uh, steelhead cruising through the system. You know, the odd fish that gets pulled out of there is, is probably not of uh, as great a concern as to when we're down to a few hundred fish. I and mean, that's clearly an sure. entirely different story. You know? uh, and then what, what about the big bar slide? I mean, it, it, it's when you sort of read the, the public media, uh, it seems like that has been the, the cause of this precipitous decline recently. Sure. That's, that's displacement activity at its finest. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of politicians that are wearing capes and talking about how great of a job they're doing on Big Bar. Uh, they're not doing that great of a job on Big Bar. Uh, but secondly, under that, the salmon upstream of Big Bar crashed years ago. Like the early Stewart run crashed years ago. There were no Chinook getting to the upper tributaries, uh, years ago so now everybody's you know got these politicians saying oh look at what a great job we've done we're taking care of these fish and you know even the the press releases that you see all the time from dfo talk about um how we have all these problems with fires and how that 
it's affecting our fish and runoff and how it's affecting our fish. The fires were two years ago in the Chilcolin, right? So all the fish that are coming back now had the fires had no effect on those fish. They had all long departed the system and now they're coming back. So this is where you run into this subterfuge from DFO that talks about all these things that they can't control and that are affecting fish. Meanwhile, these fish have been out to ocean for the last, you know, three years, two years, four years. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's, I mean, the big bar thing is displacement activity. This is DFO saying, oh my goodness, fish are in such bad shape and it's because of fires and floods and big bar and you know these fish that are returning right now there's been no, the, the effect wasn't there i mean big bar was not an issue at the time and so what has caused that decline of those uh, upper fraser runs yeah i mean there's a whole bunch of you know the science like it's people are pointing to ocean survival in a big way there's going to be some places where habitat freshwater habitat has been nuked from things like logging or whatever um, but the ocean is like fish are disappearing in the ocean, for sure. Um, they're disappearing in the river on the way back in nets, but they're also disappearing in the ocean. And it depends on who you talk to. Um, you know, uh, Carl, Dr. Schwartz talks about pinniped predation as being a huge change in the ecosystem. Um, I think at the end of the day, you know, if it's similar to the wildlife world, you need to start doing things. Like you need to start pulling management levers. And yes, climate change is real. And we don't have, you know, as the individuals with DFO, we're not going to see a huge impact right away. But what we know is we can stop ranching the ocean, i.e. putting tens or hundreds of millions of pink and chum in the ocean all over the world. We know that we can probably manage pinniped predation and that it can probably have an effect. We know that where habitat's been destroyed or salmon passage is an issue due to culverts or logging or whatever, we know that we can control that. So those are all things that you can put money into and try to measure the effect. But if your harvest if your harvest levels uh, from your net fisheries are in excess of what they uh, need to be, or or what, what the fish populations need to be to to continue, then everything else you do is a complete waste of time and money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we talk about that in the steelhead world as well. Is there's no point in even having a Thompson River if there's no fish that are going to make it to the Thompson River. I mean, it's uh, you know, it it, it it there's no sense in having a whole bunch of habitat that's empty. Like clearly, that's not the bottleneck. Um, so yeah, you got to deal with, with issues outside of the river. And, and what about, um, I, I know I've heard some, uh, summaries from the North coast, um, sport fishing council in terms of the presentations they've heard from DFO, uh, from, uh, international uh, interception where, you know, in some cases, you know, the, the, the observers have found 22,000, uh, sort of teenaged, uh, Chinook salmon on board, which you know potentially could be an entire run or or a large portion of an entire run, um, and up until I think last year, uh, DFO's um, equipment, their their planes, essentially were able to fly to the international limit, and then they didn't have the gas they needed to do any any patrols, or they had to fly back. I mean, so why even spend the money on the jet fuel to take off if if that's where we're at? Yeah, it's interesting because I did have uh, an MP who will remain unnamed mention this these issues, and I it's understood in Ottawa that this is a major threat, or it's known in Ottawa that it's a major threat. And uh, again, I think that when we sit down and think about this stuff, if salmon were really important to the government of Canada, they would have a handle on this stuff. 
right? Being a person that flies planes, I can tell you we can get a plane that has enough fuel to fly from Vancouver to Australia. Um, so I've done that. I've done that route. Yeah. Right. So, so really what, what you're finding there is that it's known in Ottawa that this is a problem. There's no action on it. And what I read into that is that there's no political will to change that. And what that speaks to me is that the politicians who are representing us don't think that salmon are that important. Well, and I think it goes one step further that uh, Mr. Dressup and his band of fools are uh, probably card-carrying members of the Chinese Communist Party, and uh, they're quite happy to have their comrades take our fish, uh, and uh, which then gives them an excuse to build the pipeline to their comrades. I can't do partisan politics. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I can. I can. So that's uh, so. In your opinion, that that some of that ocean interception is another uh, critical factor in terms of the the number of fish that are returning, and maybe not necessarily in the steelhead because they're a little more difficult to intercept in that fashion. But our sockeye and chinook um, that would definitely apply to those species. Yeah, and we and we don't know. I mean, the the world of fish and wildlife is kind of like you have recruitments. It's like you have a bucket. And you're putting water in the bucket and your water is your recruitment. It's the new fish coming into your system and you have a whole bunch of holes in your bucket. And so if you don't know who caused those holes or who is causing those holes, you'll never know why your population is changing. Right. So, right. you know, again, if DFO and the federal government are not spending the money to do the job to understand who or why there are holes in the buckets, we're never going to know. And yeah. I mean, you're going to find monitoring is a huge issue. And when you look at the United States, I mean, they spend orders of magnitude more on fish and wildlife conservation than we do here in Canada in much smaller systems, right? So again, political will, political priorities, I feel like. Yeah, I think they have a better system in terms of the ability of uh, the population to demand the government take action in terms of legal actions, as well as their ability to, to put items onto the ballot to vote on. I mean, uh, for us, that's a very complex process to, to get a plebiscite uh, moving forward. Yeah, they have, <clears throat> in the States, they do. They have laws that protect endangered species. We have laws that protect endangered species once a minister, once the minister of environment decide that they're going under species at risk. So they have much stronger laws. They have much better funding mechanisms. Um, yeah, it's worlds of worlds of uh, change. But, you know, again, that's like you say, a lot more to do with our apathy than our ability to change laws. Because we know that we can change laws in Canada. We do it all the time. We know that we can change laws in British Columbia provincial government does it on almost a daily basis. So, so the doing in terms of changing laws is easy. The doing in terms of getting politicians to change laws is hard. Right, right. Uh, and, and we lack the ability to take things to court to, to force those issues. Uh, whereas in America, you know, uh, an organization like uh, BC Wildlife Federation would have the ability to launch a court case, which would force the government to take action. Yep, yep, definitely. Their endangered species legislation uh, is much, much stronger than than what we have here in uh, Canada and British Columbia, for sure. We don't even, I mean, British Columbia doesn't even have an endangered species act or legislation, right? That's interesting. Uh, so we, we kind of touched on a few points uh, with your your battle of information with uh, DFO uh, in regards to, to these steelhead uh, stocks. Do, do you want to give us a little uh, play by play of, of what that process has been and, and, and where you've arrived to uh, 
uh, at this point? Sure. Yeah. So, so when I talk about freedom of information, that's a provincial process. And so there's legislation around that and we can get things turned around. But the trouble with what I go through the province is a lot of the interactions they have with DFO, which is federal, are redacted. Um, so there's a federal process. It's called ATIP, Access to Information and Privacy, whatever the finish, the end of it is. But when you go through ATIP, um, it's a complete nightmare. There's no legislation. So I put an ATIP in to find out what went on behind the scenes inside a DFO, why this recovery potential assessment, scientifically reviewed, peer reviewed document was not released. And so I requested, I think originally a time frame of maybe April to November in 2017. And it came back from DFO that it would take over 800 years for me to get access to this information. <laughs> and how did they arrive at that number? I mean, that's just a ridiculous number. It was based, they say it's based on the volume of paper that they receive. And they said there was like 40 inches of paper. I can't remember. And they can only go through, you know, 20 inches. It was some, you know, it was something ridiculous. But the trouble with this is that the same people who would have edited the science, the science are the people who get asked to provide the information to ATIP. So I had to refine that down to, I think, a two-month period between September and November. And it's still, they said it would take two years to get that information. So we're, we're past that two-year mark now, are we not? Well, I asked for it. I'm a year into it because I asked for it last okay. year. Okay. I filed a complaint with the Officer of Information and Privacy Commissioner um, around, first of all, I said, you're asking the same people who edited the science to, to provide their emails and they're not going to do that because it's going to cost them their jobs, right? If, if it sh shows up that they were putting pressure on scientists or changing science message, that they're probably going to lose their jobs. Um, so that's the first problem. The second one is why is it going to take two years? So, so I contacted the OIPC in November and finally got assigned an investigator in February, contacted the investigator, got signed a second investigator, and I've been bugging them to get, get an update through DFO. And now we're August 20th, so nine months later, and I have no update. And this OIPC, this independent investigator, has been contacting DFO, and DFO will not respond to OIPC. So, you know, not only is DFO immune to the public getting information, the people who are above DFO who are supposed to be able to get information out of them can't get anything out of them. So DFO is, DFO is stonewalling, essentially. Yep. Yeah. That's... Yeah. It's called a deemed refusal. Um, so basically, the OIPC has a period of time where they say, we want an update on this file. Um, DFO would have a certain amount of time to respond to that. And basically they didn't respond within the statutory requirement, which is a legal requirement as far as I can tell. And so, yeah, so like you, you can't get information from anyone. And I wrote the Auditor General of Canada. They're completely non-responsive. The Auditor General of BC got back to me right away, but they said, there's nothing we can do because this is a federal government issue. Well, and it sounds like the uh, Auditor General of Canada has been uh, defunded to uh, avoid uh, examining what's going on within the government. And that's uh, pr pretty obvious. Yeah, that could be. Yeah, it could be. Um, but I, I mean, I couldn't even generate a response out of them on this issue, which just seems completely bizarre. Uh, and is there a next step legal um, step that can be embarked upon? We've asked some of the legal enviros, uh, but, but there's, 
we have like we have no recourse like we there's no like we were talking about earlier it seems like we don't have the laws to support us and so again it comes down to finding elected officials who will help us out right right so that obviously a culture within uh dfo to obfuscate the truth and and push their own agenda regardless of what the science is yeah i i you know the more i get to know about this I mean, DFO has phenomenal people working inside of it. Um, science, habitat, enforcement, some of the people in management are awesome, but they definitely, the organization is set up to basically be, be as covert as it wants to be. There's no oversight, there's no independence, and DFO management carries the day. I think that's the biggest challenge is, you know, in the world of wildlife, the scientists decide how much wildlife is available for hunters. In the world of DFO, the scientists do that, but the managers don't listen to them. Right, right. Yeah, and certainly, you know, DFO doesn't have a glowing track record. You know, when we look at the, the collapse of the cod fishery, I mean, they continued to continued and expanded the harvest rates um, really for political purposes to continue employment opportunities. And, you know, from one year to the next, that was completely gone. Yeah, yeah, and I, my understanding is they've opened up the cod fishery again when they were told not to here just in the last year. Yeah, I had uh, Dr. Daniel Polly on yesterday, and you know, he made the exact same comment, which was, you know, when you you take your stocks down to one percent of what they were historically, and then through some you know magic of nature, they're now at two or three percent of what that historic abundance was. That doesn't mean that it's time to open up the fishery. That's a you know that's a sign that we're recovering, not an opportunity to go back in and and knock it back further. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's um. You know the the institution is not is not built to conserve or restore fish populations. It's set up and it has a uh, an internal mechanism that is about fishing, whether it's sustainable or not. And so it's uh, yeah the 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 agency is broken for sure. Yes, it's it's almost uh, time for uh, uh, one of one of the royal commissions or something of that nature to re-examine the pathway forward from uh, from a, essentially a failed institute uh, and and revitalize it as something new and fresh with a different mandate. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, we had the Cohen. I mean, I think there's been a number of in inquiries into DFO's performance and fisheries performance over the years, and just nothing changes. And you know, my my gut on this is that the advocates need to carry the torch on all that stuff. Um, I think, you know, I think people are getting to the point to, to realize like, Hey, our politicians are not going to take care of these fish. So we're going to have to do it on our own and we're going to have to convince the politicians that they need to do what's right or we'll find somebody else for their job. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then we would touch base on the, on the first nations of the native fisheries. Um, and it seems like, you know, there's a couple of things going on there. One, uh, obviously with, uh, they have a historic use of the resource and they, they're feeling like they've been left out. Uh, and now they're in a situation where they essentially have unfettered access to the res what the dwindling resource is and there's no, am I correct in, in saying that there is no management in terms of numbers harvested? There's no reporting of, of, of that catch? There, there is, there is reporting. It's not, so it depends on the area. Um, but I, I guess broadly, on the First Nations piece broadly, there are First Nations who are 
what you'll find is it's really interesting because it's highly variable, just like non-First Nations anglers as well. It's highly variable, but there are First Nations who are spending their own time and money to restore habitat all over the interior, taking care of fish, and they don't get fishing opportunities ever. Like it's extremely rare. And there's other First Nations who, you know, and it's not even the nations, they'll have individual band members who go out and fish regardless of whether it's open or closed. So it's, it's super variable. Um, there is reporting. Uh, there's supposed to be reporting and same with anglers, licensed anglers. There's people who don't write down their shook on their license. So, so it's a problem for sure. Monitoring is a problem. DFO knows it's an issue. First nations know it's an issue. It needs to be improved. And, you know, when we talk about monitoring, it has to be independent. So it has to be third party. That's the biggest part of the challenge. And, and I guess without that uh, quantification of what they're removing in terms of their catches, you know, that further uh, exacerbates the modeling in terms of the accuracy of, of what our numbers are. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. I mean, the, my biggest frustration with all this stuff is there are thousands of fish that disappear in the Fraser every year that according to DFO never existed. They don't uh, show up. They don't show up in their models. And so we have this exploitation rate for these at risk and endangered Chinook runs. The minister said max 5% exploitation rate. If you look at the reconstruction model for DFO, as soon as those fish hit the river, all the ones that disappear in illegal nets, they're not there. They don't exist, which, you know, with models, the more information you have in models, the better they work. And in these cases that we have, the information is just not being put into the model. And I think part of that is that it would show that we're well in excess of the 5% and we would show even more extreme changes in fishing uh, regulations. Uh, and, and what do you suppose if it's not for, if it's not 5% interception, what do you think that number is at? I have no, I, I mean, I have no idea. Uh, we're over five in most of those fisheries. Um, there's three, the five, two, what is it? The five, two, there's three or three runs that are at risk or endangered. And then, I mean, I think two of the three, we were over already with our known quantity, never right. mind the river. So we're over. And the bottom line is we got to cut back and, everybody's going to feel the pain. Um, but until again, with models and with accounting, until we know what everybody's taking out of the river and out of the ocean, uh, we're not going to have a good idea. And it, and it applies for anglers too, quite frankly. I mean, with First Nations, they'll say, yeah, but you guys aren't reporting either. And, you know, we could have a better system for reporting our catch for sure. hundred percent. Well, and certainly on the saltwater side, I mean, I've uh, spent quite a bit of time in the Queen Charlotte's and, you know, you see the, the, boxes and boxes of uh, fish that's leaving there, uh, destined for some freezer in Alberta that's probably gonna get freezer burnt and thrown into the trash. Uh, I, I think the, some of that is almost, a, some of those lodges are almost conducting small scale commercial harvests. And you know, do you really need 100 pounds of, uh, or 200 pounds of salmon going home from a trip or are you happy with a couple of fish? I mean, I think there needs to be a bit of right sizing in terms of those harvest rates as well. Yeah, that's fair. And I mean, yeah, the big thing is the monitoring piece um, and how we do it. And we as well went somewhere where we had, they had the commercial processing license. So we took our fish there and we dropped off a fish and they said, well, we can just put this on this license or whatever. And it's like, wait a second, here's my license. Here are the fish I caught. Those go on my license. They don't go on someone else's license. I don't care if it's my wife or my kid or whatever. They go on my license. So no, it's not okay that they just go on anyone's license. Like, so there's pro there's definitely problems in the system and improvements that can be made on everyone's end. I think. 
Yeah. And then uh, uh, Bob Hooter and I d discussed the, the concept of uh, fish being used as the currency of reconciliation. Um, are, are, are the are last dwindling fish being used as uh, bribery tools? Well, uh, yeah, I think so. The challenge is that that just like us, fish and wildlife are near and dear to First Nations hearts. And and when governments go in and negotiate, so our world in BC, um, for non-BC listeners, is we don't have treaties by and large with First Nations. So um, that brings millions of challenges with it. And so what the federal government and provincial government are supposed to do is have government to government negotiations and negotiate on our behalf to figure out a way that we can all coexist and take care of these landscapes. Fish and wildlife are super close to First Nations hearts. They're super close to our hearts. And we all think that we should be managing it. And so the trouble for us is that provincial and federal governments go, well, again, if we give up fish and wildlife, then we can have rent from timber and we can have a mine there and we can get rent from the mine and we can bring in dollars these ways. So the politicians are making a political calculation to say, hey, if we give up fish or wildlife, it's not gonna cost us that many votes. And if we get access to timber, we're gonna have jobs and we're gonna have royalties. That's what's going through their brain. And so again, that's a matter of people who care about fish and wildlife to say, hey, we want our values to be placed at the top of your negotiating pile. And when you right. meet with First Nations, we want you to say, we want to share this resource. Because the interesting thing is, on the wildlife file, there are First Nations that have said, we want to share this resource. Like in the case of Roosevelt Elk with the KDC, they've said, we want to split elk 50-50 with First Nations and licensed hunters. That's their... And there's, no, there's nothing in the law that says they have to do that. There's nothing in the constitution. And they've said it's good for our communities. We can all work together and we can rebuild the elk population. There's other First Nations who have said, we want 100% of this and we want to manage 100% of this. And you know, that results in social dysfunction and chaos. Um, but you know, we have to impress upon our politicians that they need to represent our values at that table because they can negotiate anything. I mean, you can, you can negotiate out section 35, you can have a firm allocation of fish and wildlife. Those can all be done, but they won't be done unless it's important to politicians. Yeah, and I think that's, um, that, that collective management model, I think is something that we need to move towards um, instead of the animosity between the two groups. Right. And clearly some of the native bands or nations are, are much more forward thinking. Uh, than others. And, you know, the year is 2020. What happened in the past happened in the past. And we need to forge alliances to move forward for the betterment of everyone. Because if we don't, you know, again, it's more divide and conquer. And ultimately, we'll, we will all lose. Yeah, and success breeds success. And so in the case of the KDC, this elk situation, I mean, this is really the only big conservation story we have in, in British Columbia right now. The elk had been absolutely hammered. And, you know, part of part of everyone hating each other and fighting with each other was we're going to split the elk. We're going to grow the elk. And so the same elk that we're sharing, there's enough of them that we transplanted them onto the mainland. And so we've got Roosevelt elk where we didn't have them 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. So not only have we figured out a way to share elk, we figure out a way to increase the elk and we've got elk in places that we haven't had them. 
So when you put people at a table and you let them work together to make a brighter future, um, they can do that. But if you put them at a table and say, how are we going to cut up the last fish in the ocean? They're going to be at each other's throats. That's right. Uh, and just for the listeners uh, that may not know, where, which region of the KDC in? Where, where are we talking about with this? Uh, uh, Vancouver Island, uh, northern end, so Campbell River, and then a little bit on the uh, mainland as well. Uh, so bottom end of the, what's called the, uh, um, well, bottom end of the central coast. Okay. Okay. Excellent. So if we, if we shift gears now towards uh, solutions, which we kind of were just, uh, just chatting about, um, what's our, you know, where are we at in terms of, uh, priorities in terms of these solutions is funding habitat restoration, uh, you know, at the top of that list or, you know, developing better, more selective commercial fishing methodologies. What's at the top of the heap? I I mean, getting a handle on as much as I hate to say, getting a handle on the, on the killing of fish has to get, we gotta, we gotta take care of that right away because it's something that we can manage. Under that, um, I mean, there's been a lot of work put into pinniped predation and it's pretty compelling. Uh, so going down that road uh, is a possible solution. Freshwater habitat for sure. Uh, in places, in other places, it's not a big issue, right? So that's uh, place and space dependent. Uh, they're talking about another terminal right at the mouth of the Fraser River for a, another port. I mean, I don't think that's going to help our uh, Fraser returns. Oh, probably right? not. Uh, so, and let's just let's just focus on the pinniped management uh, for a second. I mean, I know as a as a sport angler, when you're uh, you know a couple hundred k away from the ocean, um, up in the some of the skeena systems there, and you see some seals bobbing through the tail of a run, and uh, you know, and, and almost without exception, you're, you're the fish that you do encounter have some. Uh, damage some sort of scarring from 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 battle with the seal uh, what is our present population of pinnipeds in relation to what it was historically oh you, yeah you'd have to i'm not a i'm not a subject matter expert on this at all carl's the guy you'll have to have him on your podcast okay that, that's speak. carl schwartz yes yes okay he can speak authoritatively i mean he's a scientist on this um, I would 100% follow his lead. Um, we had a recent thing with uh, the MPs, the DFO uh, and uh, committee for with the MPs, and he's the person to talk to for sure. He'll he'll tell you the history and what's changed and what hasn't. I mean, it's compelling, and I think you know we see this in the wildlife world as well. I think it's unreasonable for us to expect to be able to exploit one part of the ecosystem at extremely high rates and none of the others. So, so you know, there's one of two things has to happen. You either manage the ecosystem and set objectives for the ecosystem or what's gonna happen is you're only gonna be able to take little, little tiny pieces. If you're only gonna select parts of the ecosystem, there's only gonna be little tiny pieces that you're gonna be able to put on your, your dinner table. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, certainly with, uh, I'm surprised that uh, in, in relation to the pinniped management uh, and uh, with respect to the orcas, um, that there hasn't been more talk about trying to reduce the pinniped population to allow more food stock for the, for the orcas. I and mean, I guess that's, again, a, a value decision. Which one do, do people value more or find you know, more friendly and cuddly, I guess, is the, is the question. 
Yeah, and people are, you know, it's going to bother people. It bothers people intrinsically to think that they're going to have an effect on seals because they want orcas. People have a really hard time processing that, especially if they're not in the world of hunting or fishing and catching and killing stuff and experiencing it. They struggle with that. So, um, so it's, a, it's an ethical dilemma that society will have to struggle with, but the, the big thing is to let the scientists do the science and then let society make the social decisions. And so, you know, even if we don't ever go down this road, we should have all the science available and it should be paid for and it should be independent to say, hey, you had this many seals, here's how many you have now. If you do these things, these, pull these management levers, here's what we expect is going to happen to your fish we should have that information as a society we should be able to make those decisions and right now we we can right yeah i mean certainly if uh if there was a, a seal cull uh you know the, the there's not necessarily needs to be a harvest of that material i mean if if they're basically you know shot shot in the water and let uh, let sink it's uh, a net benefit to the ecosystem i think as you're feeding the crabs and the and the uh, the prawns and the rockfish and you know there's uh, abundance of biomass which will go into the ecosystem yeah, and it's, um, again, it's a social issue. Uh, I know there's a group of First Nations who are trying to find a market for seals as well. Um, but again, that's the social science part of it, because with species like grizzly bears, uh, society really doesn't like the thought of people shooting stuff and leaving it, or shooting it for certain motivations. So, so there's science that can be done, social science that can be done on that end. Um, but it's, you know, first things first you need the science similar to caribou i mean we're we're managing wolves for caribou here and you have to spend the money to do the science to be able to go to society and say look caribou are down it's because of logging logging brings more moose moose brings more wolves wolves are killing caribou so we got to deal with habitat over the long term but right now we got to stop the bleeding which means managing wolves and by and large, society has in BC has been able to say, okay, we can live with that. There's a whole bunch of um, advocates, you know, scientists that wear advocacy hats that say there's no science behind this and it doesn't work. Uh, the reality is it seems to be working and the top scientists are saying it's working. So I think that's where, you know, you can get, uh, you got to get the science piece out there and then bring the social piece in behind it. Yeah, and certainly amongst these predators, and I mean, and wolves and and uh, seals and sea lions are uh, uh, serve a similar ecological niche, and they're highly developed, highly refined predators. And uh, a wolf pack, I don't think, has a preference for moose meat over caribou meat. If they find an individual that they can single out and, and hunt down. Um, they're not going to make a distinction in the same way that a seal is not going to avoid a steelhead because it's uh, one of 30 fish going back to the Chilco. If you know, he locks onto that fish and is able to put it in his jaws, that's, uh, that's the, the seal has done its job. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they're, yeah, it's not, uh, it's funny. People always tend to get polarizing with it and they're these evil, cruel animals. I mean, seals and wolves and grizzly bears are just trying to make a living on the landscape like all the rest of us. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a simple, simple reality. Absolutely. Um, and then, what about poaching? Uh, is poaching a real concern? In terms yeah, of the, the the illegal nets are for sure. The black market for fish for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I do. It comes into my mind regularly that maybe we should shouldn't be allowing the sale of fish. 
to tell you the truth, like the commercialization of wildlife was one of the, you know, most negative effects. That's what drove wildlife into the gutter uh, in the early 1900s in North America. Uh, there's some major externalities uh, when you are selling stuff. And there's people who are, you know, it's on the East Coast too with lobster. They're having huge issues with lobster poaching, huge right. issues. Um, so there's incentives there. And I mean, if if the government is not going to get a handle on it, not going to enforce the law, then you're going to have, again, social dysfunction. So yeah, the illegal harvest, we definitely need to put some focus on that for sure. And uh, even in terms of commercial fishing and being able to track fish to where they were caught is a huge, there's a, there's a black hole there. When you buy fish in a restaurant, you should know exactly where it came from, which population, if it was sustainable, if it was farmed, if it's, you know, all that stuff should be upfront for sure. Right, right. And, I, and certainly the technology exists to do that in terms of uh, uh, determining the genetic blueprint of very simply you know, scale sample or, or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's industry. You know, there's a whole bunch of industries where we can trace which farm it came to and where it, whose plate it ended up on. So there's no reason we can't do it with fish. Uh, and we touched earlier upon, uh, you know, the requirement of using the, the mortality estimates in the population modeling, uh, and and, and your obviously in your opinion that that has to be part of the integrated solution. Uh, this population management. Yeah. So yeah, this is specifically so in the ocean they have like an estimated mortality rate from catch and release fishing from nets, all the rest of that stuff. But like I said, once those fish hit the mouth of the Fraser, they, these nets are called persons, person or persons unknown, popu nets, they call them there. I mean, that is a daily occurrence on the Fraser river and it has to be incorporated in the models. I mean, you, and the information is there. It's just not in the models. The DFO enforcement has to call every single net in what was in the net, what species, what the date was, the location. And the fact that DFO is not including in that in their reconstruction models, it just, it blows my mind. Yeah, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, and then uh, what about a more selective commercial fishing methodology? I mean, are we, is, is netting the, the way that we should go? Or I mean, in some of the tuna fisheries now, uh, there's been sort of a move towards uh, pole and line mm -hmm. uh, fisheries. Um, is that is that a reality? Yeah, selective fishing uh, is a reality for sure. Um, how you do it is 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 up to is up to the you know the industry or the individual. But we have to go there. The alternative is we aren't going to get to fish. Like if we can't if we can't key in on abundant fish versus endangered fish, we're not going to get to go fishing. That's really what it's boiling down to, and that's why, you know, we see closures for um, Fraser Chinook all the way up the coast, is because if you you know if you can't put out the fire in one little spot, you're going to put a blanket over the whole thing, and that's where we're at. So the sport fishing industry is going to have to find ways to innovate to make sure that they're not killing endangered fish commercial fishermen are first nations fishermen are as well yeah uh so if, if mr zeman was in charge of implementing a new fish and wildlife management strategy for bc what would that look like sure uh well there's three things that you need for natural resource management you need funding science and social support and that doesn't matter if it's air or water or fish and wildlife and so the first thing is funding. So you need money. Money needs to be dedicated so that the people who are paying the bill have line in sight. So, you know, 
hunters and anglers, people like you and I, when we pay a license, we want to see that license go right back to the resource. We don't want to pay our income tax and just see it get swallowed up in Victoria. So you have to have dedicated license, licensing and funding mechanisms. The other thing under that is that people who make money off of natural resources like forestry and mining and development, they should all be paying into conservation. So when you go out and you build a cup walk, some of the money that you make off that cup walk should go back into wildlife. So everyone in BC who is making money off of our resources should be paying into it. That takes care of the funding piece. On the science side, you should be setting objectives for fish and wildlife populations. They should be legislated. That is entirely an independent science function. And then your objective is to get to those objectives. So if they say we need at least 3,000 steelhead in the Thompson River, we go, okay, how do we get there? What management levers and at what time? And then the final piece is the social support piece. And this is the one that we have the most wrong, um, the governance piece. When you have money and you have objectives, people can see the resource improving and getting back to normal. And when people can see that happening, they're more willing to work together. And so the governance piece would be a round table where everybody who has a vested interest and is paying gets a seat at the table. And their job is to nurture this process to get to where we all wanna go. So that to me is what a funding model uh, for fish and wildlife looks like. And then obviously a feedback loop between the social support back to the funding through the science and sort of a yep. continuous iteration of that process. Yeah, for sure, yeah. I mean, so if you compare it to any other thing, like healthcare and education, um, if we didn't fund healthcare and education, we'd have a lot of people who weren't very smart dying at a really young age, right? <laughs> that's the outcome. And that's, sure, uh, that's, yeah. that's our funding model for fish and wildlife. That's what's going on is we have a bunch of, you know, if this were healthcare, we'd have a whole bunch of people that were tipping over at the age of like 13. Right. And they wouldn't be right. able to read and write. And that's, that's how we manage fish and wildlife here. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a sad state of affairs. Um, and then Jesse, if you could go back in time and speak with yourself as an 18 or 20 year old uh, young man, uh, what would you tell that person? It's a great question. Cause I, yeah, I have no idea. What would I tell that person? I don't really know. I didn't, I had no idea until even the last 10 years that how, how challenging this world is for sure. Um, I would enjoy, I would have, I would, I guess I wouldn't have taken those moments for granted going at getting to go up to places like Rupert or the West coast of Vancouver Island and catching fish or going to the Fraser river. You know, I don't think anyone 20 years ago would have ever thought that the Fraser river would be closed in its entirety. Sure. Um, so, so I guess, you know, enjoy, enjoy it. Yeah. Really. Excellent. Uh, and then what are your personal fears moving forward? Ah, uh, big picture is, you know, the, I, I guess it's the status quo. You've heard me mention politicians a lot and I just, uh, it's so uh, disheartening to, to see British Columbia kind of losing, losing what makes it so valuable to me and to my family and, you know, not having anyone anywhere kind of in the legislature and the house of commons say, enough is enough. We're not okay with this. We need to change what we're doing. You just don't hear that ever from anyone. And, uh, you know, they're obviously have a different focus than, than we do. Um, but 
yeah, that's, that's the biggest, my biggest fear is that we'll just continue down this road and continue adding, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and putting more pressure on the environment in BC. And, you know, the day has already come where we don't get to go fish the Fraser River. Um, and, you know, that's going to get worse, not better, unless we start to change it. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that some of that is also uh, uh, due to the uh, the urban suburban divide uh, or the divide between the lower mainland and the rest of the province. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I feel like um, politicians like like Vancouver, they really like the lower mainland. And uh, it's uh, you see this kind of regressive approach where, you know, three percent of the province which is like 90 plus percent of the population dictates for the entire province how they're going to manage their world and so you know what happens is that people who are you know wealthier more educated are saying to people outside of there you can't live your life the way we think you should and so you're impacting everyone else and uh yeah it's it's uh i guess that's partially a matter of education for sure um, but it's the urban rural divide is real, no doubt about it. Yeah, that, that's that's the beauty of socialism. <laughs> the- yeah, but it's also of you know I mean it's just uh, I feel like a lot of it is just not being able to see other people's perspectives as well, you know. Um, oh, because you're you're killing Bambi. That's not uh, right. That's not acceptable. That's awful. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so if we switch gears now onto uh, the organization which you're with, the BC Wildlife Federation, uh, what are the organization's strategic priorities? Uh, right now, it's, um, I mean, this, the BC Wildlife Federation is the oldest and largest conservation organization in BC, um, well over 120 years old, and we trace our roots back. Um, priorities are around a funding model. Um, sustainability of fish and wildlife and access to fish and wildlife. And so right now, front burner uh, blockades in the Northwest to hunters and anglers and campers um, that's been taking up all the time here over the last three weeks. The, the, the COVID blockades or? Yes, the COVID blockades. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the, the COVID blockades get more nuanced because um, people, people who, go up there to go camping and hunting and angling don't go anywhere near the communities up there. Um, but the people who have hired, um, a guide outfitter or gone through ecotourism or a flow plane operator are still allowed to go up there. So those people who can afford it are going to go right into those communities to take their flow plane out to go to where they're going, which is probably pretty risky. Um, and the people who are going to drive up there and aren't going to go anywhere near the communities are not allowed up there. So, um, you know, the COVID is legitimate, is a legitimate risk and we have to make sure that we're all safe, but having people go to parts of the province that are hundreds of kilometers from any community is probably the lowest risk behavior that we could have. Um, and bringing people into our communities from outside of the province, especially, is probably some of the riskiest stuff we could do. Sure, sure, yeah. And of course, if you're simply driving through um, a community with your inside your vehicle, windows up, I mean, the, the chance of any transmission is functionally zero. Yeah, and, and in this area, I mean, there's really only three communities and people are not going into the, the spots where people go hunting and camping and recreating in that area, nowhere near communities. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost uh, almost an excuse of access control and a bit of uh, fle muscle flexing. Yeah, and the interesting thing is they already, you know, First Nations have the ability to basically blockade communities and reserves. They already have that authority. Um, and so, you know, and obviously uh, we would support any First Nations in that as well and adding resources um, to put blockades up to make sure people aren't in communities. Entirely legitimate concern, but... Um, blockading areas that are remote and nowhere near any communities um you know it's hard to support that yeah and it's interesting how it doesn't work both ways i mean i was uh up in, in a terrace area there in late april and we couldn't get into king Coleth to, to launch the jet boat uh yet um the natives are flooding into terrace to do their grocery shopping and uh so that, you know, that's that's uh, inequitable i mean you can't have it both ways yeah so that, and this is part of the challenge that you end up with um, is that we have to find a way to reconcile our differences and to work together. And I think a lot of this um, comes down to, you know, First Nations are really worried about declines in fish and wildlife. And what's the easiest thing to do is to neutralize the competition or the people that you perceive are impacting the resource. And I think that that's a lot of this outcome. And that's where, you know, if government wants to do government to government, they have to represent our values and figure out a way to have us all at the table so we can work together to make it better. That's right. Uh, so can you highlight some of the, uh, the victories that uh, the BC Wildlife Federation has had recently? Recently, how, how recent do you want? Um, in terms of the last election, we were able to get Fish and Wildlife Conservation into every party's platform. Um, the provincial government, the current government, gave the Fish and Wildlife Branch its first raise and probably since at least the 90s. Um, it's not what we would like, and it's not what the government promised. It's way less, uh, but we were able to, I think the, the branch now got an additional $10 million this year. So it's not great. It's not where we want it. It's not what they committed to, but it's, uh, it's pointed in the right direction. Excellent. Uh, and how can people get involved or contribute to the organization? Yeah, uh, we have a number of committees and clubs all over the province. You can join a club, you can be a direct member. Um, and even if you don't want to be a member, I do feel like the biggest and most important thing people can do, it's only going to take eight hours a year, is to meet with your MLA and your MP every quarter. Every three months, meet with them, sit down, take in your notes about what's important to you and why and what you're going to vote on. I think that's the biggest, the single biggest thing that people can do. And so you're going to need two meetings every quarter. And if you can sit down and if we get thousands of people to do that, we will get change. And when I talk to people about this, they get really nervous about talking to their MLA or their MP. And the thing you have to keep in mind is that MLAs and MPs are very everyday people. Most of them are not doctors or brain surgeons or, you know, shuttle drivers for NASA. They're everyday people who got elected to represent you. So their job is to take care of your interests in Victoria and Ottawa. They aren't going to know anything about fish and wildlife. They aren't going to know anything about conservation. So don't feel like you have to be an expert and you have to show up with a bunch of graphs and tell them everything. All you have to tell them is we have a problem. Fish and wildlife are declining. I care passionately about this. I'm going to vote on it. You need to represent me in Victoria and Ottawa. And I want to see more money. I want to see more fish and I want to see more wildlife.
Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. And that's, uh, that's something that uh, if everyone took that action and, and there, you know, even if we had uh, 10% of the angling and hunting community out there doing that, we would have tens of thousands of people uh, at a quarterly basis in their MLA and MP's office and they would begin to take note. Yeah. And then they would. And I mean, you know, when we got the increase in the branches budget, that was a few handfuls of people doing that work. So if we have tens of thousands of people showing up, we will get rap change rapidly for sure. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's an excellent point to end, uh, end today's uh, broadcast on. Jesse, thank you so much for that. Uh, let's keep in touch as the time goes by. And uh, if you come across any um, issues or, or problems that uh, come onto your radar, please let me know. We'll get you back on. And if I've got some questions for you, I'll do the same. Sounds great. Thanks, Michael. Fantastic, sir. You have a great day. Um, listeners, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. Take, have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye.